All right, we are now recording. Hello and welcome again to another episode of Letter of Law Interviews. Uh, in the fifth episode of this interview series, I'm delighted and thrilled to be in conversation with Mr. Vakasha Sachdev. Uh, Sir is presently an associate legal editor with The Quint. Before that, he has worked in top law firms across England and in India. Uh, and uh, I'm very, very happy to be in conversation with you today, sir. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, no, I mean, thanks so much, Sarthak. And uh, again, you really don't have to call me, sir. Right. In fact, uh, for the benefit of the viewers. <laughs> Just Vakasha is fine. Right. Vakasha, in fact, did mention to me beforehand that you don't need to call me, sir. <laughs> but it's just a force of habit, you know, <laughs> hard to let go. Right. Uh, well, uh, before anything else, Vakasha, like you said, you're an Arsenal fan. So congratulations on defeating Manu after 14 years at Old Trafford. <laughs> I know it was quite a it was it was a long long uh, wait and it was nice to see them. Also we haven't beaten a top six side away from home for a long time. So. Right. It was good. It was it was finally a moment. Like it, it it gave me a little bit of hope. I think for uh, even the U.S. elections as well, which fingers crossed will also not by the time this episode comes out turn out to also. <laughs> Right. Um, but you know we'll have to see how that goes. Um, I think uh, when it came to uh, that that match, I mean it was uh, uh, it was one of those things where it's almost like you know it's it's sometimes the way I think people have to fight <laughs> cases in court where you're waiting all this time for something to work out and then it kind of happens. So you know um, it was good though. So <laughs> absolutely. Uh, so are you also a football? Are you also a football fan? Are you? Uh... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Although I haven't uh, been following this season very closely, but I'm a Chelsea supporter. Right. So you don't see eye to eye about the things. But... <laughs> yeah, but I mean, it's it's, it's okay. I mean, uh, it's it's a good season for Chelsea. Also, I think you guys got a lot of good players. And Definitely, that's fun to see. Episodes. Absolutely. Um, well, to to start this. I mean, off, speaking of of Chelsea yeah. Arsenal uh, as a thing, uh, it, yeah. it's quite interesting. Like my, when I got my first job, which was in the UK, at my job interview, I remember it was quite funny because I I'm not quite sure why I did this, but I had written a very uh, quirky uh, letter, sort of you know the cover letter for it, and I'd mentioned the fact that the reason why I'd heard of that particular firm was in fact because a friend of mine was there and uh, a family friend was there, and he'd helped us get an Arsenal shirt uh, of mine <laughs> and then get it kind of repaired because there was a huge, some massive issue with it. And the thing is, I'd mentioned this for some god-awful reason in, in my cover letter. And the guy who was interviewing me was a Chelsea fan and he was oh. like, you know, maybe we shouldn't hire you at all. But like, it just became like a fun little kind of fan. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, out, so. <laughs> while you were in England, I mean, I didn't, while you were in England, did you get a chance to watch Arsenal live? Did you go to the Oh, stadium? yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, it was it was actually again very interesting because uh, when I went there initially, like I wasn't because getting the tickets isn't quite so simple, especially I'd gone sort of midway through the season and it was quite tough to get it. But I was visiting a friend at Oxford and then I went to watch this match randomly in a pub with some people there and yeah. turned out a couple of them were Arsenal fans. They were, you know, and they said, you know, next time if we have a spare ticket, we'll take you uh, like with us to the Emirates. And that's basically how it worked out. Uh, and then after my firm used to get tickets like corporate hospitality tickets, I used yeah. for that. I got a few tickets of my own also. So it was it was it was great fun. Like it was, I think yeah. If you're a, if you really do enjoy your football, it's a fun thing to do. Yeah, superb. Well, uh, to to start this off, Vakasha, why don't you you know tell us a little bit about yourself? I I understand that you went to law school in uh, in Bangalore, NLS Bangalore. So why don't you take us through your journey? You know, through law school, then moving to England, working in a law firm, coming back to India, and joining the Quint, and so on. So um, I think it's, it's, it's an interesting thing to look at because I was very representative, I think, of your typical sort of middle class kind of kid who was very, um, with this very emphasis on sort of upward mobility kind of thing. And that was something which really kind of drove a lot of what was happening uh, with my journey, I think, because as a kid was very keen on, you know, you know, so that thing, oh, do well in school, then you'll get into a good college, then you do well in college, then you'll get a good job, you know, that sort of progress yeah. kind of thing, which is supposed to happen. And that kind of uh, I mean, I was uh, very happy that I kind of got out of the rut of wanting to become a, an engineer, which was the standard thing at that time. And pretty much all my friends were all planning to become engineers. And, um, you know, I met a, a senior of mine from school who ended up being at NLS. And he was one of the first few people who kind of made me realize that there is more to life than just that. That you can, not, you don't, ha just not going for IIT doesn't mean you're not smart. <laughs> you yes. know, so that was quite a revelation. 
at one point for young yeah. me. Um, you know, and I think that was, uh, it was good though, because it, I think law school was a very, uh, was a very useful place to be because I think it, it just is a very useful tool to you. It's not just about what you learn in terms of the law, right? As in the way of thinking, which can be inculcated in law school, I think, is uh, quite helpful. And for someone who is very argumentative, who like to, you know, get into a lot of things on logic and, and you know, oh, what is the real basis for this? What is there actually a rule behind it? Which my poor mother had to suffer a lot of that, you know, <laughs> and a lot of my teachers had to suffer that when I was younger. Uh, I think it was a, it was a great place to go. Um, I, so when I was in law school, I, I you know, I mean, it was, uh, it was an interesting thing to see, uh, to, to, to try and like learn all of this stuff and also realize at a particular point that, you know, you don't know a lot of things. And that was quite bad for my ego, I think, <laughs> in college, because I think a lot of us, especially we go, you know, when you go to, when you're studying for law and all, you, you generally are quite confident, assertive about a lot of the, the things that you think you know. And you, to, you do have to, of course, realize that you do have a lot more to learn. And I think that was something which was, uh, which happened in law school. Uh, but as I said, you know, sort of still being kind of driven a lot by this sort of, uh, ideas of upward mobility and trying, kind of trying to get there, which is there, I think, for a lot of us who've been through all of this. It was a thing where I didn't really want to think about jobs which weren't going to pay me too well. So I quite early on decided I want to go for corporate law. Now, I, in retrospect, there's a lot that I would like to go back and slap uh, young Vakasha for because, you know, there was, it wasn't the best way to think about this, right? Um, I think it's, it's something which is important for many of us. It may, it, 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 it's important for a lot of reasons, right? Because when there, there's such a wide variety of people now, especially now, uh, thanks to a lot of efforts like the IDIA, where you have a nice diverse set of people. Sometimes, you know, it, finances will be important. Sometimes uh, you have to look at other considerations. Uh, but I think I made my decision slightly badly in that sense that I decided that I wanted to be a corporate lawyer. But again, not that I did this very well because all my internships were, <laughs> litigation internship okay. and um but and then basically this was the first job which was there on offer you know the uk firms come in a little bit earlier than the okay. indian one and it was the first job was there managed to get it and i was like okay you know what this is great like i'm, <laughs> I'm gonna go for it and i had done the sum total of 20 days of corporate law internship at that wow. time uh, <laughs> when i went when i got it and um it was, uh, it was, I mean, I, I enjoyed corporate law and I think uh, especially those who've done a bit of mooting based on corporate law in, in law school will, will have, we will quite enjoy it. And it is definitely, uh, it's a career path which is quite secure and safe. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when you join a UK firm, for instance, you, you're thinking that because your work life actually is actually a bit better than it is in an Indian firm. I see. Uh, so, I, you know, on all of those things, initially it seemed like great. Uh, but over time, you know, one started to realize that is this really what one wants out of life? And I think I was privileged enough that I could start, I could really think about that decision. It wasn't something where I had to be like, okay, I have to keep doing this for financial reasons. Um, I was privileged enough to be able to, uh, at some point, start asking myself, is this really what I want to do? And um, basically, I decided I wanted to make a change into something else. Um, I still wasn't entirely clear on what that was for a long time. And sort of from there, I thought about, looking at teaching, but then, you know, I wasn't, I'm not that privileged, <laughs> you know, where you can <laughs> look at teaching as a viable option. Um, and I sort of ended up kind of getting into this thing where I was writing for the Quint part-time and that seemed like a great kind of option to pursue taking further forward. And uh, that's, and then I decided to make that permanent, which is sort of how I landed here. Wow. That's, that's quite a journey. I mean, I mean, I'm sure there must have been a lot going on in your mind. It, it was, it would, it definitely by no means would have been an easy decision to leave England, come back to India, join Quint, you know, at a at a much lesser, I think, pay. I think, and since uh, yeah, I mean, obviously, see, journalism, unless you're uh, Arnav Goswami, which who wants to be that man, uh, especially now, which is you know, uh, <laughs> interesting news. Um, I don't think it's 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 not. It doesn't obviously pay you that well. Um, but I think depending on, you know, what you're looking for, uh, you can find a decent gig, especially I think because there is a, especially for law students, I think it's something they should actually consider because there is a need for uh, people who actually understand the law to be able to do it. Because one of the things is our news cycle in India is insanely tied into uh, the course and what's going on there as compared right. to 
the news cycle in most other countries. We have so many issues, whether it's like, so whether it's the actual kind of cases themselves or whether it's just any political matter, social matter, everything is turning up at the Supreme Court or in a high court. So there's so much going on in the courts that you realize that every newsroom here needs people who really understand that. So Absolutely. there is that area of that level of specialization. If you say do a little bit of work either in, in any particular specialist field also for a while and then even come back, you have you're in a pretty good position to actually ask for a pretty decent salary. I mean, well, it's, it's again you're not gonna you're gonna look at people you're gonna look at your old say a law firm salary or you look at your friends who are earning that there and be like yeah it's not that level. But um, I think it, it depend it, it kind of comes down to what you really want out of uh, out of life. I think for me it was what I like about it is the fact that there's always something new to do. Like it's never the same thing over and over again. It's all every day is a different. Story. Every day is a different uh, issue to deal with. And one of the things I hated about being at a law firm, for instance, was that it was all just very monotonous. So even if you're doing a new deal, uh, the, the, the stuff you're doing is broadly the same thing, especially yeah. if you're not in a dispute resolution. Like any deal, the, the, the cycle is the same. The documents are broadly the same. You just have to obviously have a few things thrown in. But you know, you'd actually get, I got, I've got to do more research in this job than I got to do uh, at any point uh, when I was doing transactional work. Dispute resolution is obviously different and it's, uh, it, was, it was something I really enjoyed actually when I did it. But um, I think for me, a lot of it came down to uh, looking at what I really considered to be meaningful and what would make me want to wake up in the morning and go, go to work. And while there are good things about uh, even this, whether about the law firm uh, existence, I think it was especially like looking at, I used to look at all my clients at all points and be like, oh my God, like <laughs> have even one of these people not done something, something ethically dubious, like forget oh. legal, like, I mean, ethically dubious. And it's, it's quite sad that you realize that none of your clients, like none <laughs> will have done, will have, will be clean in that sense. God. Um, so I think, but again, I mean, that's, everyone has their own personal decisions and where that, how that affects them, but that's sort of where I, uh, that was one of the considerations that really made me realize I needed to make a pretty drastic switch. And that was mm. why this kind of worked out well. I understand. Uh, it's interesting, uh, Vakasha, that you said in India, uh, news and basically everything that goes around is very tightly connected to the courts and the law. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, you know, as, as lawyers or as law students, from what I understand, we look at a judgment, we try to find out its operative part and that, beca that becomes the law for us all the criticism and appreciation of the judgment or the law stems from that mm -hmm. point. But as a legal mm -hmm. journalist, does that change? Does your approach of perceiving law change? And if that's so, what, what kind of change is it? Um, uh, it's a, this is actually a really good question. I think it's, it, it actually comes down to where the function that the law is supposed to uh, serve in a society, right? And, yeah. and it's supposed to be something which is supposed to keep society functioning in it's supposed to make things easy. It's supposed to protect people's rights. It's supposed to prevent injustice. That's the basic idea of, I think, any law, right? Whether even uh, even commercial law, that's pretty much what it's about, right? Making sure that people who have made commitments are able to, uh, you know, are following those commitments. You don't break your promises. You're doing justice. Again, that's all law comes down to a large extent to that. And mm. I think what's interesting is that that's sort of what a lot of us as law students obviously appreciate, but can sometimes get a bit lost, right? Because when you become very formalistic about how you're approaching the law, which is, which is an entirely natural thing to happen when you're in law school, right? yeah. you can sometimes lose sight of that bigger picture. And I think what's interesting about legal journalism, and I think it, it, it's something which has to evolve because I'm not saying that what's been done so far is correct or wrong. But I think we've got to be at a point where we're achieving both things. We're able to make sure that people are able to see the big picture while also being able to make sure we're really accurate because that accuracy is really important. Now, one thing that happens a lot of the time is if you see the way a non, and I've seen this because I've had colleagues who will go to a hearing and the way, the things which they think of, which they uh, think is, oh, this, this is something that should be reported. is very different from the way we would think. And we need to kind of actually find the right balance between those because I, I can, I will sometimes watch something which it'll be a very explosive kind of statement, but I'm like, yeah, but that's not part of the, that's not going to be relevant to the ratio of the case. So yeah. we don't need to get into that. Whereas uh, someone else would be like, oh, wow, that's a, that's a great statement. Like it's, it's controversial. It sounds interesting. That's what people will want to read. And in a sense, they're right. The problem is, of course, that if it's not tied to the main issues in a case, then should we really be getting into that um, in what we report? So 
what I would like to see us do is kind of find that balance of being able to say, okay, here are the things which are actually important about the case. And here's why even that should excite you, that should interest you. And, you know, that's something which can go forward. And the other things we are able to find a way, I think we as the legal journalists have to be able to find a way to contextualize those as well. And sometimes that's important. Uh, sometimes we are, we'll have to say that, okay, look, even though we may not think this is important, it is mm. something which people need to know, but then we have to explain why and the limitations of that. So for instance, if a judge makes a controversial statement, if it's just an oral observation, that's not necessarily going to affect the judgment in the case. But at the same time, we, I think one of the things is we have to kind of talk about that. And I think that's the reason why live tweeting and, you know, additional reporting by like live law and bar invention has been so good for us as a society, as a polity is because you get to know a little bit more about the mindset behind law. Mm. I don't know if you saw uh, the, uh, so I know it's, it's kind of topical, but like there's the uh, trial of the Chicago 7. Yeah, yeah, yeah movie which is It's really fascinating because it's summed up in that whole thing where, I don't know if you've seen it, where uh, two of these guys are saying, look, this is a political trial. And the lawyers are saying that there's no such thing as a political trial. Mm. But that's crucial. And I think that's something which people have to understand. And that's where we have to find a way to kind of navigate that better. It's been tricky at times, as I said, but it's something which I think we have to be able to explain the extraneous factors which are going on in, a, in, in, in what's happening, the political elements, and try and contextualize it in a, in a sensible way. It mustn't be that we just start labeling everything political and shouting and screaming about it, which is all honestly like a lot of the time what feels like doing. But we have to find a way to be able to explain that and say, okay, look, this is what the judge is saying. It's problematic for XYZ reasons. But also remember, it's not going to necessarily affect the judgment. But people need to know that because that perception is important. That understanding of how uh, even a court is sometimes guided by other considerations, and subconscious uh, considerations sometimes is going to be relevant to it. Sorry, that's a bit of a rambling answer. I'm not sure if that no, no, fully no. answers exactly. It did, in fact. And there's a lot that I want to unpack in your answer. Because, so, so you said that, you know, how various uh, news portals which are putting out live tweets of uh, important cases that are going around in various courts. Now, indeed, that has opened up uh, the courts for the common person like no other. And it has made uh, the happenings of the court very accessible. But at the same time, a criticism of this, this kind of live tweeting that I've come across is that it causes both the bench and the bar to play to the gallery and say stuff that is often not important or relevant to the case. Do you think that's true? If not, what, what means do you think are important to make what goes on in the court more uh, transparent and accessible to the public? I actually, I, I'm not sure I agree with that criticism. I think they, I'm not saying that it, that it won't happen, that there yeah. will be this, that there might be situations where there is a bit of playing to the gallery, but then, but that's not necessarily the case. I mean, the judges can keep things quite tight and clear and simple. Like if you don't want to get involved with that and it's not an issue to be done, the judges to very simply just stick to the law, stick to the issues, guide the, the, the case in that direction. And, and I'm sure, and people will appreciate that. I think it's one of the reasons that people actually appreciate things coming out of say Justice Nariman's court these days in the yeah. Supreme Court is because he keeps such a, it's such a tight ship. You know, as such, in terms of how the case goes, how the judgment goes, that's it. Um, judges who are playing to the gallery are going to play to the gallery, I think, in a sense, anyway. Like, um, you know, the, the, that's a judge who's allowing themselves to get caught up in public perception is going to do that in any case. Like, if, And this is actually a problem which has come about because we've not had this kind of life. So what used to happen a lot of the times if you read reports from courtroom reports from cases uh, a couple, just a couple of years ago, and you still see it now, but it used to just focus on these random little offhand comments, which the judges knew that there's a reporter sitting there, so I will say this, and I'll just throw it out, and that, and that will go out and become something. The advantage of, of having live tweeting is now that the readers can also see whether that's how genuine that is and how sensible that is. You've got the whole context there. You're not just seeing this one statement which was made, which the reporter knows, yeah, you know, this is going to be make for a good story. I mean, all of it is there. So for the reader, it is much better, actually. And you have less of playing to the gallery because the whole context is that the judge actually has to keep their focus because you, just because the judge may say some great statements, like say in the, 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 the Section 377 case, if you'd had the judges just make a couple of comments uh, which they knew are going to be reported, but then... Uh, it, it, over the rest of their questioning or over the rest of the, the way they were going about the case proved to instead take a very different view and then their judgment turns out very differently. That's, that's not going to work. 
Um, I mean, I've seen this criticism as one of the things why people are saying also maybe live streaming is not a good idea, but it's yeah. not because it's the, the, that this all is going to come down to that judge anyway, and it becomes a great tool. The more you have transparency here, there are two things which come out. One is that it ensures that if there is a valid argument made, which has just been basically ignored by the court, it's something which people get to see. And this is this was. I mean, this is very, very important in a time when, you know, you've talked about, you, you mentioned that you've uh, you followed some of what Gautam does, but like, you know, Gautam Bhatia has talked about the concept of an executive court. You're in this position right now where there is so much of this. You have things like sealed covers and all this stuff going on. Yeah. When you have all of that, it's very, very important to have transparency about what's being argued. I mean, just look at, uh, and, I, and I bring this up because I remember there was, there was an instance during the electoral bonds case. Mm-hmm. And this is why it's so important uh, during the electoral bonds case uh, when last year they were hearing the interim request to state while the general elections were on. At that time, um, the government got up and they made this argument saying that, oh, look, you know, there's so many of these people have talked about why there was a need to reform India's uh, electoral funding system. And they and people like that have gone and endorsed the electoral bonds scheme. Now, Fascinatingly, uh, they brought up, they were like, oh, see, there's even a Carnegie uh, endowment, uh, Carnegie International has done a report which said that it was something which needed to be changed and all. And they cite, and they named the person who said, they said it's written by this, by a professor, Jennifer Bustle from the US. Okay. Now, the fascinating thing is, so I tried to look that up in sort of real time also to see what was there. I was in court, I'm tweeting what's going on. I looked up to see what this article said. First off, there is no article by Carnegie. This was an article Jennifer Bustle wrote in, she, she, she's written a book. One chapter of that book was about uh, elections in India and problems with funding, uh, with, with election funding in India. And she, uh, that chapter was republished in Hindustan Times first as an I article. See. That article, because, so Carnegie, because anyone who's associated with them, they repost like an article which has been done by one of their people who's associated with them on their website. So that was why it was on the Carnegie website. It wasn't a report by Carnegie. It wasn't something which they had looked into. This was a Carnegie associated author has written an article. Therefore, we are posting the article here. That is what it was. The best part was that that article merely said that there was a need to be to improve transparency and funding. It didn't say electoral bonds are the answer. And the hilarious part is because of the tweets which which I put out and I mentioned the name of the author. The author responded to my tweet saying... Uh, I never said what the government is saying here. She actually said it. Like, and she, so this is on Twitter. It's up there. Anyone can see it, right? And she responded. Um, and when, and the, this was then sort of brought up in the court by the petitioners who were saying, you know what, uh, this report is not what you're saying it is to be. And in fact, they found the similar articles by Milan Vaishnav uh, in the same kind of manner where he'd written somewhere else and I was posted, which said entirely the opposite thing. The best part was Jennifer Bustle sent me her own article from the financial and sent, and she put it up on Twitter. So, you know, even the petitioners were able to see it where she had actually expressly written a separate article in the financial Times saying this is a bad thing and it's bad wow. for transparency. All of this is, you know, sort of context, which can come up, which you need to, and I'll tell you why you need to keep this in mind because the petitioners then said, we need to put rebuttals on this kind of stuff, which the government has said. They wanted to submit uh, the Financial Times article, what Bustle said in her tweets. All of that, they wanted to put this up there to counter what the government said. CJ Gogoi says, um, no, 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 don't worry. We don't need to hear your arguments. We're not going to consider that what was submitted by the government at all. He expressly said this in court when they asked for a chance for rebuttal. Order comes out a couple of weeks later. Order says, government has submitted Carnegie report saying wow. blah, 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 blah. Wow. Now, if you don't have live tweeting, the judge, nobody knows that this was argued in the court, that the author said something about it, that the judge said, we will not consider that, and then goes and considers it. We wouldn't be able to prove that as a thing, whereas now we know. And I think that's transparency is absolutely crucial, which we right now, if you don't have that, you'll never know this. You don't know the kind of, you don't know what's been said, what's been put out. So the judge then writes in their order that something which goes completely against what they've held in the proceedings. Now this is blatantly unfair, right? Because if you're going to cite a report and then not allow the other side to counter that, saying that you're not going to refer to the report, but then you actually end up doing it. That's, 
that's bad faith right and that throws your whole judgment into doubt and that's something which again i think the cost of maybe some judge sometimes playing to the gallery versus being able to know that this is happening mm-hmm. i mean i don't i think it's not even a there's, there's no context <laughs> you know Absolutely. because it's far more important to know that this is what a judge is doing because when we're doing the when we're looking at the legacy of someone like gobal given how divisive he is given how controversial he is we need to know this information that's actually a very interesting answer and it uh, brings a whole new perspective to this debate so uh, thank you thank you for that really really insightful answer uh, you know based on what you said earlier vakasha uh, i get the impression i mean there there the need there isn't any presumption of uh, an impression it's actually happening that the present media houses are riddled with sensationalism and just like you said in the earlier days also there there used to be you know one reporter sitting in court who'd know what statement would capture the fancy of the readers and it'll make them read it so they used that and perhaps blow the thing out of the proportion given that sense given that uh, social setup and given the situation that law is a very very sensitive uh, issue, uh, concerns very sensitive issues almost about everything that's going on in our country how do you ensure that correct information reaches out and is consumed by the people um so can you just repeat that a little bit so you're saying that in the context that it's easy for these things to get wrong like how do you make sure that yeah basically accurate, right? right 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 um i think i mean this is where that old adage of sunlight is the best disinfectant comes true again right because the more transparency or the more is there now for instance if if someone misreports something there's five other people who like treated what was said or this who have been there who know what's going on so they're able to say you know what no that was not what was pointed out you know mm-hmm. that was not what the judge said mm-hmm. um and that's a good thing i think that's so one of the best things is the more you have reporting on things the more you have that outside it's going to happen uh, i think already look i, I don't want i don't want what i said earlier to be taken as a thing of saying that maybe what those reporters were doing was wrong or you know that they weren't good at their job like some yeah. of them I mean if we look at the old school newspaper reporters honestly sometimes when it comes to, they are the most reliable they were they are the ones who really know what's going on in court yeah. um i think what you got to do is be able to kind of find a way to marry their ethic and rigor with uh the sort of enthusiasm which uh, I, I, and the digital technology which we now have which allows you yeah. to do quicker and faster reporting on all of this um yeah. it's a challenge i think across general media as a whole not just legal reporting to make sure that it doesn't have a problem in legal reporting i mean obviously the best thing to do is uh, have more you know sort of legally qualified people reporting on what's going on and when you look at for instance the supreme court that is the case the reporters who are all there most of them uh, have all done a law degree you know so they they know a bit of that um already i mean and they know it, some of them will <laughs> know their stuff so well you know they can sit down with a, with a senior lawyer and have an argument with them you know? I so i think it's we are in the, see the, the biggest obstacle to uh, accuracy in reporting i'd say these days is about the speed and the urgency which is all there which is itself a function of the digital world that now everything comes out fast you can't just be like oh you know what we would, everyone's going to only publish it in the morning in the newspaper so you know what we'll take our time to do it which would be good i think a lot of the time now on the other hand you have to um you know you'll have to get get your story you have to be the first one to do it otherwise you're not going to get site traffic you've got to make sure you've got covered all those keywords otherwise you know it's not going to get readership so these are the things which i think are the biggest challenge to um, accuracy in reporting but what's fascinating is that i think what we've seen with things like live law and bar and bench is that there is an appreciation for things which may have previously been considered a bit esoteric people mm-hmm. are genuinely interested in this yeah. stuff so if you actually put in a bit of time and do a good job on it people will read something even if it's a bit complex even if it is uh, uh, tricky i mean some of that comes down to the fact that as we talked about earlier right this is something which so much of indian life is revolving around what's going on yeah. so that it is almost a necessity of interest there. but yeah. i think even outside of that i think this is an area which has been for so long such an arcane kind of thing so the, when people get more and more of an insight into it, it it's something which which is interesting and i think any law student at no matter how much you may hate law school and you may hate what's going on the <laughs> law is still a fascinating uh like it's a fascinating subject every aspect of it is interesting oh. whatever angle you're looking at even when you're getting angry at it and you're looking at uh, you know a law which you think is unfair and you think that it's not uh you know progressive enough or you think that a law is uh, you know 
uh, if we look at say preventive retention, all those things. The, the point is, it's interesting to look at. You, there is always an angle there which is interesting uh, because there is a uh, th there's some sort of socioeconomic or historical background which also comes into play. I mean, preventive retention is something which is so intrinsically unfair and problematic. And then you think you, the last person you think would defend it is Ambedkar, right? But then when this was being debated in the Constituent Assembly debate, it's in the Constituent Assembly, you have Ambedkar supporting India having a preventive retention law. Right. But then you understand, you have to look into the context behind it. He's looking at the kind of world which they were in at that time, and he's looking at the communal tensions, and he's looking at the fact that you have a society which still has, is, is potentially going to be violent and take action against other people who are part of it on the basis of whether it's community or caste, which was obviously a huge deal, uh, you know, so you can understand where his fears and worries and reasoning for saying that you have to have the ability to stop this kind of stuff from getting out of hand. Uh, you can understand why it's there. Um, I disagree with it and think that maybe you don't shouldn't still have this kind of a law, but yeah. you know, he tries to build in safeguards for it, right? He says that you have to have, it has to be reviewed every uh, few months. You have to have that kind of stuff, which but it doesn't get misused, but then, that's obviously the danger you then fall into later on is that, uh, you know, governments don't want to do all of that. Right. And it's in their interest to not, uh, <laughs> you know, look out for those safeguards. And then it's then, but of course, that's where now your institutions become important. Your Supreme Court, your high courts become important. And that's the biggest, I think, problem is that we are seeing a repeated failure by these institutions to, to you know, kind of live up to those kind of things these days. Um, Right. Uh, Vakasha, it's very interesting that uh, you'd say how more and more people today are curious and want to know about what's happening and going down with the law, given that, like we talked earlier, it's, uh, it's, it's pervalence or throughout the social fabric of India. So in that sense, uh, you know, I, I read almost every article that you write on Quint. And uh, one of the most striking features about your articles, in my view, is that despite their uh, le legally intensive content, they're readable not just by those who have a training in law, but even by those outside the legal fraternity. So as a legal journalist, how do you ensure that your writing remains accessible to those who don't have a training in law? Uh, so first off, I mean, thank you. <laughs> That's great to know. And I mean, that is pretty much what one does this for, right? That you want people to be able to actually uh, really get something out of this and, and it, it, it helps inform people. So that's all, it's always great to hear that that's the case. And, you know, one really hopes that one can keep doing that. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's an interesting uh, one because I, uh, I, I, I've sort of struggled with this at times. I think um, I've had to deal with, so I personally um, have always liked to write in a more conversational style and have a more kind of informal way of going about things, which however was a, was, a challenge at times in law school and then even when, you know, one was doing work after that at a firm because, you know, you have to be much more cut and dry and much more, you know, focused. Um, so I think I was lucky in that sense that I ended up coming back to this because what that meant is that I could, because that is how you, you, you can, you, if you just try to write uh, about the law and explain what's going on in a very dry, uh, focused manner, that will not work for non-lawyers. Um, so that I think was lucky for me that I had a propensity for, I think trying to be more informal and conversational, which also sometimes means that my pieces go way out of hand in terms of length <laughs> and uh, word limits are a big problem. Um, but I think um, if, uh, I, I, but I think at the end of the day, it comes down to something which is that even in a professional context, you need to be able to, what do you need to do with your, with a legal brief? You have to be able to explain the context, explain why that's important. And then sort of essentially almost a bit like that whole, the old IRAC rule, right? You need to explain yeah. here's the issue, here's what the rules are, here's why it applies and, you know, summarize it all. One thing which you have to do a little bit more in, uh, as a journalist is sometimes move that conclusion up. It's basically put an executive summary at the start and then get into your, uh, conversation. And I think, but that's, I think, good practice. And that's something which uh, I used to, we used to do at my uh, law firm in the UK. And I saw, and, you know, even in India, you know, a lot of firms will do that. And a lot of lawyers will do that. Is because, yeah, you need to give a basic idea of what your argument is going to be. And then after that, kind of really take the person through understanding what it's all about. And that's sort of how I try to write my stories, is being able to say, I don't want the person to be daunted. I want you to be able to understand why is this important? Why does that? And then, you know, here's what the rules are. Here's, you can find it. Try to give them a link also if they really want to chase it up. 
simplify the rule for the person, then sort of step by step take you through why does that rule, why that law, why that judgment becomes important, why you should personally also be bothered with it. I think that's something which we have to do a bit more uh, all the time. And I think it's just a matter of trying to just be clear on what you're saying. Um, and that's something which, again, law school is a great place for doing that. You have to learn to do that. Um, except for if you have a professor who wants you to write long answers just because yeah. just for the sake of it, which we all have some of them, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. But for the most part, you know, the law is about trying to be concise and clear. It's about getting the message across. Now, mm-hmm. you will, it's the, the way you'll do that in a court is going to be slightly different from the way you're doing it when you're trying to explain it to uh, the average reader. Yeah. But the intent is still the same thing. So I think it's just a matter of literally kind of trying to visualize how you would have a conversation with someone about an issue and get them to understand it. And so you will be factoring in your audience there, uh, which you would do as a lawyer in any case. Like if you're up before, say, an arbitrator who is a specialist in a particular area of law, you don't, you know you don't have to like hold their hand through everything. You know, yeah. you can cite a judgment, you can cite an, a rule without fully getting into, you know, anything. Whereas for a, if you're doing it in a court, uh, especially say a lower court or a court that doesn't have specialization in that area, then you would you will spend a bit more time delving into it, explaining it. Um, if you're briefing a senior, uh, you know, you will do it differently from the way you're talking to another colleague on, on, on the case and trying to help them understand it. So it's all about, you know, it's a bit of, you have to contextualize it based on who your audience is, but the message is still the same thing. You have to explain, here's why this is the rule, here's what the analysis is, here's why it's important. That's, you know, it all comes down uh, to that. And I think uh, pretty much all lawyers I've seen, you know, who actually enjoy the law and enjoy what they're doing are very good at being able to do that. Um, Sure, it can be sometimes you have to realize you have to drop some of the jargon, you have to drop some of the technical stuff, but that just happens with time. Um, And you kind of realize that you want to get a message across, so you will figure it out. That's something which will kind of happen, I think, naturally. If you just start thinking about the fact that I need to make this uh, easy for you, for you. Just literally imagine yourself having a conversation with someone who doesn't know the law. And how would that go? What would you need to say? And that's, that's pretty much it. Right. Uh, so, you know, moving into the final segment of, the, of this interview, what would you say, Vakasha, is, you know, who do you think legal journalism is for? And if there are law students who are contemplating a career in this field, what do you suggest that they do in law school to have a good career in this field? Um, so to start with the first part, I think legal journalism is, is for the average citizen, the average citizen and even not citizen, um, you know, anyone who's living in a particular country, you need to know what the rules are because the law, I can remember the law, what does the law say? Ignorance of law is not an excuse. Everyone needs to know what's going on with the law. They need to know how laws are, how existing laws will affect them. They need to know how laws which are coming into force. Uh, now, what is the what's really going on there? Wh- what are the consequences? And you know, something as simple as just say the CA, right? If you just took the CA in terms of its message of saying, okay, we're trying to do this, it, it doesn't seem so bad, right? You're like, okay, you know what? They're giving a, p- a bunch of people who don't have who, who have had a traumatic time. You're giving them an easier path to citizenship. You're not going to treat them as a legal migrant. What's so bad about that? Purely on that basis, it's fine, right? But when you do a bit more of a legal analysis, you understand the Article 14 implications. You understand what it's doing by not giving that to everyone. You understand that it's now segregating a group of people from others. It's one set of religions, not all religions. It, you, you understand that, it's, uh, it, it, the, that there is no rational base, rational basis on, the, on, on which this is being done. Now, all these things come into play in a legal context. And if you just started spouting off the constitutional provisions or that it, it doesn't necessarily make sense. But once you understand, once you really sit and sort of understand that context, you're able to understand why this law is dangerous, why mm-hmm. it's problematic. Even if, even if it is, even if purely on its effect, purely on its, ba- on its intended effect, it's going to be a good thing. There are still problems with it. And you understand that, I think, when, I think you understand that better when you understand uh, a bit more of the way the law works. So uh, we did a video with Suraj Patasarthi from, uh, who practices in Madras. And I think right. he, he put it, really, he did it really, really well, kind of just very simply explaining, forget the NRC, forget the whole stuff about uh, whether people will be disenfranchised or not going forward. Because that's a forward point. It, 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 it's a valid argument to make in certain ways. But at this time, you know, that's, you know, it, let's put that, park that aside, because that becomes a political argument, which people yeah. may not put it 
just look at what that law is on paper and you realize that there are problems that when you do a, a deep analysis. Now that's not easy for the for a person who doesn't understand the law to do because that's how laws are framed. They're not always framed easily and that's I mean there are those there is an argument that sometimes laws are made more complex to make it tougher for people to understand what's going on. Yeah. But sometimes that's a requirement. You know, I mean at the end of the day, because if you try to explain everything in your legislation text, you will go mad trying to do it, right? So you'll have to have references to other things, you'll have to have common definition, all those you have to use specific terms, and that's okay. Certainly. But being able to understand what's going on there makes you more informed, makes you understand the true import of what's going on. And I think that's crucial for citizens at any point of time in a democracy, especially, I mean, in any country, but in a democracy is particularly because you're supposed to make informed choices about who is making your laws and how your country is going to be governed. For that, you need to understand all these aspects of it. Um, if it comes to rights, again, it's crucial. Obviously, you need to understand your own rights, whether it's when you get arrested or if, you know, what are, what are your constitutional rights, which are there in terms of if the state's going to stop you from being able to say things. These are all things which, 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 which are absolutely vital, I think, for people. So those are quite, quite obvious. Mainly the idea is we want, you know, as, as lawyers, we love being able to, I think, have that sort of extra bit of knowledge. And we love being able to, you know, when you have an argument with a non-lawyer, like, you know, I, I, I know this a bit better than you do. And your thought process also will help you with that. But uh, everyone needs to have that knowledge in yeah. some way or the other you know we have to use it in a particular way as lawyers but yeah. everyone needs to know that and i think that's what legal journalists are all about because once you understand that you're able to understand so much of how your country is functioning because as long as you are a constitutional democracy um and i say that with a certain degree of apprehension uh you have to make sure that you're following certain rules you're a country which follows the rule of law things can't just be done by cs they can't be done by dictator. there has to be something with the way it go, things go about. And that's obviously the scariest things about what's going on in the country nowadays. But there's still, at least, you know, even now, there's, you know, for, things, there's a format, there's a procedure being followed. Yeah. And those are vital uh, for being able to, I think, you know, preserve a democracy, preserve the rule of law. And that's important to be able to ensure you achieve justice eventually in a country. And that's, I'm assuming, and that's sort of the main focus of where a society needs to go. It needs to, that's what Martin Luther King said, you have a moral arc. The, the arc of history is to tend towards justice eventually right? and that's sort of what you've got to kind of achieve um coming to what law students should be thinking about i think is uh, as i said the, the thing is there's, there's a lot of opportunity in this field i think um for law students who want to do something like that who, who enjoy communicating who like explaining things taking it out there and who yeah who, who for whom there isn't maybe a financial imperative to really um, have yeah. a lot of money um yeah. <laughs> you know uh, it's, 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 I think, a very uh, interesting career choice to make because it's something where you will always have something new to do. You will always be dealing with uh, something different. It's a challenge in many ways because now I had uh, not done public law for ages, right? I'm, okay. I worked as a commercial lawyer. Yeah. And then coming back and having to get back into constitutional law and criminal law, yeah. especially, which I thought I'd uh, you know left behind, was, uh, was quite a challenge. Um, but the thing is, it's, you know, it's, it's exciting because you're able to, you're, you'll interact with people who are experts in the field. Like, I mean, all of us will, will look up to people like Sanindra Singh or like Adushyandave or, you know, people that, you know, you look up to, uh, you, you see what they're doing you, 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 uh, and you get to actually be there in the room with them. Mm. I mean, not in COVID times, but, you know, <laughs> you get to, you, you can actually become friends with some of them. You can have a conversation with them sometimes, which will be really, really enlightening. And I think that's, a great, uh, you know, sort of uh, added benefit to it on. But the main thing is, it's just, it's, I think, a chance for you to be able to um, see the effects of the law up close and personal. I mean, you can obviously do that as a litigating lawyer, but it can also be, I think, a backbreaking exercise. I mean, I'm continuously in awe of anyone who actually does litigation, especially those who do litigation where they're, you know, criminal litigation where they're helping people who are uh, facing problems or people who are fighting big constitutional cases on a regular yeah. basis. I mean, I'm in all of them because it's, it's so much effort and it's so much yeah. pressure and it's so much uh, to, to do. Um, if you want to be able to be sort of part of that process, if not, if not necessarily doing all of those things, like I don't think I could handle doing mm -hmm. that uh, day in, day out. Um, but, but if you want to get a bit close to that, then you can kind of look at this as, 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 as an alternative where you are, Sure, you may not necessarily be the person making the argument in court and saving someone's life or fighting for someone's rights, but you're helping get the message out. And that message is important because 
uh, you could it, that sometimes fighting those cases like it, it people need to understand what's really at stake in a case. It could be just a bail fight in a particular yeah. court. So people need to understand what's at stake. Uh, it could be a constitutional case which otherwise may not seem that interesting, but it could be a huge deal. And that's something where you, as a legal journalist, can understand what's that the issue, what the issue is there, and you can help, you know, get that message across. You're, you can amplify those who are doing good work. You can um, ensure that what they're doing is not in vain, which also is, I think, a, a good motivation. And uh, I, I mean, yeah, it's it's just it's interesting because you know, it's, it, journalism is a high stress, high pressure kind of job, yeah. but it's it's a very different kind of pressure from being in a law firm or working uh, as a litigating lawyer. I personally find that uh, a nice place to be because it gives, because even though if I have a deadline, which is crazy and I'm like, oh my God, I have to finish the story right now. I don't mentally feel the pressure of being like, oh my God, if I, you know, this is so important for this person's life or this is so important for like, you know, my client is going to lose lakhs of rupees, right? I mean, so that's, um, it's nice to not have that pressure. So if you don't want to necessarily go for that, but also be involved with all of this. Mm-hmm. And see how it's affecting things up close and personal. It's a it's a, it's a nice place to be. So that I sums mean, it up if perfectly. there's anyone who's interested in doing it, it's it's, it's nice. Uh, and what's interesting is I've seen that a lot of law students are doing this. When we were in college, my God, like we, I mean, there were a few, there were many few people who you know were who would do a, who would do a, you know a bit of blogging and stuff. And you know, you have people like Niranjan and all were doing India Corp Law even back then. Yeah. But I mean, Bhatia didn't run his blog, for instance. Yeah. Back then. He was not yeah. running in law school. In law school, he was. I mean, Bhatia was still anyway a very conscientious and hardworking person as compared to some of us. But like, <laughs> but you know, even it was not there. It wasn't such a big thing. Uh, it's fascinating seeing students doing this. I see students uh, wanting to write their pitch stories to us. They're so enthusiastic about all of this. Even like what you're doing, what you're doing here. I think it's it's really really fascinating to see law students really want to do that. And I think it's a matter of just. Um, if you are interested in it, you enjoy doing it, do it because people need to know what you're saying. People need to understand all of this. I mean, we love getting pitches from even law students who are writing these days because it's, it's one, it's really hard for us to see things. Uh, and two is it's great to see because a law student explaining something, especially those, those who obviously put in the basic research and done their job. Yeah. Uh, those who do it, do it well, it's because you're getting the perspective from someone, from your target audience. Like you're, we want young people to be able to understand what's going on. We want them to be able to know what's going on so they can become more engaged parts of the citizenry. If that's coming from a young person who cares enough, they're writing about something, they're putting it out there, they're being confident and bold enough to do it. And you know, we obviously can make sure that it's, it's, it's done in a way where it reads well and it's accurate. Then that's fantastic you know so the more students who really want to do that i mean it, it's great keep sending us your pitches uh keep wanting to write keep trying to refine what you're doing that is that is great and for those of you who want to become journalists it will help for those who want to do other things it's also good because you know it builds your profile it allows Absolutely. you to it gives you a you could, it'll help you in your later trying to think about writing books it'll help you with all i mean it's, it's, a, it's a very valuable experience to do it so even if you don't want to become a legal journalist we people need to hear what you have to say if you can articulate it well enough and that's you know that's what we need more of we know we need more in intelligent conversation and debate and the more you have law students being willing to do that i think the more that is look think about it just think about every big political revolution movement freedom struggle they've always involved lawyers and they've involved law students and they've involved young people doing that i mean Students have always been involved, but like law students have played key roles in this for so long. So, you know, uh, you'd have them write a pamphlet earlier and have that shared somewhere. Now you write a blog and put it on a website. It's great. I mean, that information is is, is crucial to what I think we need to do as a polity and as a society. And Mm. I think it's, you know, so everyone should just just do it. But there's no pressure either. Um, You know, just do it if you're comfortable and um, to whatever extent you want to. And It'll all work out. Just, yeah, don't worry. That sums it up perfectly. Uh, Thank you very much, Vakasha. And so, you know, to wrap it all up, the final question, and this is something that I like to ask all the guests who come on the show. Um, Uh You know, uh, what kind of books do you like to read? And uh, if there are suggestions that you think Uh that, you know, all law students should read these books, because I see you have a great collection behind you. There's Gautam Bhatia, (laughs) Chitran Chilsana and Darth Vader. So you can probably watch <laughs> yeah. some movies also that go along with books. 
I think, yeah, I mean, uh, I'll just say that I think, um, I don't think there's anything in particular anyone has to yeah. read or has to yeah. understand. And I think that's up to, um, I think everyone just needs to figure out what they need to do, uh, what they enjoy. And I think it's very important for especially lawyers and people and anyone these days, I think, to have areas of interest which can keep them engaged, uh, not in a productive way. <laughs> So for instance, my favorite books are sci-fi and fantasy. Uh, oh, nice. I mean, that's what I love more uh, than anything else because I like being able to escape out of it all. Enjoy a good story, something, you know, interesting, exciting to keep me engaged. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, that, you know, everyone has uh, things which they will particularly enjoy. I think uh, in terms of the law itself, I don't think you need uh, to have read anything specific. Um, Other than Look, law. in terms of things which are modern day issues, um, I think it's important so one of the things which I've been looking to get in, and get involved with is, is understanding a little bit more about, and I think this is something which we all should do more, and I've not done it, done it myself enough, but I think we all need to do more, is things like Kanabiran's wages mm. of uh, impunity. impunity right. We need to understand a bit more about those kind of aspects of the law, that you know there are legal issues which we just don't cover, whether it's in law school, whether it's even now as legal journalists, which are so important for... Uh, you know, the way the, the, the way society functions and the kind of issues which are facing them. Um, and we see this with the way the labor codes are being changed and things are being done, which in a, in a very hurried manner, without enough consultation, without enough consideration. I think that's something which, uh, it's a failing of mine that I think I haven't done enough reading of that kind of stuff. And I think it's something which I would like to do. And I think it's something which more of us as law students, as young lawyers, need to do more uh, to keep ourselves engaged with the bigger picture behind mm -hmm. the law. Um, in terms of, uh, you know, you can, it, it, it's, you know, there are things where you can look it up in terms of criminal law statistics or things say what's going on with under trials and all, but there are other issues as well, whether it's caste, whether it's uh, labor rights, which is, I think, what we as lawyers need to keep ourselves engaged with, because if you don't do that, you will not fully understand, I think, what's the big picture behind a lot of the things which, which are going on in the country about what are the issues which you really need to get more exercised about. Um, I think that because if you understand those things, once you start looking at that, you'll also end up in the sphere of free speech and dissent and all these kind of rights also all come into play there because they're vital. Because if you look at where a lot of uh, repressive things start in any state, it starts with targeting labor movements, it starts with targeting underprivileged uh, communities who they, uh, you know, uh, because the, the whole system requires keeping them in a particular place. That's why caste, understanding caste and the way things work there is important. Understanding uh, suppression of labor rights is important because all the things which, you know, uh, later will come into play for other people as well in a more privileged state will start there. Yeah. So, you know, I think that's important for more of us to do more uh, reading on that. So even though I haven't done enough of it myself, I think that's something which we could all try and do a bit more often. So that would be good to go so yeah <laughs> all right uh, and with this we can conclude today's session makasha thank you so much for being uh, such a sport and speaking so candidly on uh, various issues it was <laughs> it was a it was a delight to you know do this with you and i personally got to learn a lot thank you so much for doing this oh, thank you so much and yeah i mean another sign of being a nerd like i mean live long and prosper <laughs> for everyone out there definitely i'm in the fourth with you <laughs> yes uh but thanks a lot uh, this is, it was great fun being here and I mean, hopefully there'll be some nuggets of wisdom in all of this for uh, people watching. Absolutely. Thank you very much.